intent to throw hard was the thing that on top of strength and conditioning kind of got me that first jump of like 77 to like 88 miles an hour. So it's like, if I had gotten coached at that point, like it may have helped, but also may have like the wrong coaching would have yeah. hurt me. And so like, I think there's a level one to just like athletics, which would just be like, let the athlete figure out his own body and figure themselves out before anybody says anything. Cause I think that will probably do more harm than good. That was Devin Hayes, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If there's one thing that has completely changed my approach to supplementation, it's been finding performance herbalism. Herbalism is different than your typical supplements, particularly because herbalism works by harnessing the power of nature. It involves using tried and tested, high-grade, well-sourced herbal compounds to make a difference in your energy, strength, boost your hormonal system, and improve your overall vitality. That's what today's sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs, can bring to you. Whether it's through Shiliajit resin, which has been highly recommended by many coaches for improved strength, mushroom tinctures for immune support, combination packages such as the Phoenix Formula, which is one of my favorites, Lost Empire Herbs has the supplements that will help you in achieving your performance training goals. If you want to check out some of my favorite herbs, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and use the code JOEL15 at checkout. That's J-O-E-L-1-5 at checkout for 15% off. Lost Empire Herbs is a great company and I hope you get a chance to check them out. Welcome to another episode of the podcast and thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Devin Hayes. He is the pitching performance coordinator with the Detroit Tigers. Devin has experience with both strength and conditioning and pitching performance. He's worked in the NCAA, the private sector, and has trained athletes from high school all the way up to the major league all-star level. In today's episode, Devin will be getting into the elements of throws training or overhead throws training and emphasizing the rotational pieces as well as talking about the linear aspects. He'll be talking about his recent journey into javelin throwing and how he's infused some of the knowledge there into overhead throwing as it relates to pitching. We'll be getting into some of the different throwing constraints for overhead athletes and some of the uh, various techniques, the side bending elements that go into uh, overhead throwing and the multilateral components. Uh, we'll also be getting into athlete autonomy and the learning process, whether you are a pitching coach and baseball coach, uh, a physical preparation or strength coach or just interested in human performance, there is a lot of really interesting and cross-linking information into that total human performance equation today, and I'm excited to get you guys the show. So let's get to episode 388 here with Devin Hayes. Devin, I know uh, in watching some videos of yours that you have taken a turn to javelin throwing, which is really interesting. I, I was really curious to ask you a little bit more about, about that. I know I've seen um, in track in my college days, sometimes people would get the baseball pitcher. Oh, this guy's going to throw javelins so well. And then like, you know, they like hit themselves in the back with it. It's just a different pattern. But what, uh, I mean, what have you learned in that journey in that, um, in learning how to throw a javelin, having that baseball pitching background? Yes. For me, it started as I'd been throwing a baseball for like 15 years. And actually another coach, when I was at tread said, I think you need to forget how to throw a baseball in order to try to throw a baseball hard again. And so it was uh, first a self-experiment of, okay, I'm going to take, you know, a couple months off throwing baseballs and then, you know, find something else to learn to do. So I, I picked javelin. It was more so, I think I could be pretty good at it. Um, I know Driveline, another facility out in Washington had this thing where I guess the USA track team asked them specifically, anyone who had thrown over like 90 miles an hour, we want you to come like try and see how far you can throw a javelin. 
And so I had seen some of those videos in the past and I was like, I think this would be a fun, you know, fun thing to kind of like dive into. So obviously research guys like Vetter um, and their training kind of was interested in just, you know, learning to throw 90 meters. Um, first day threw it about four meters, it bent sideways. And I was like, this is going to be really hard, but I can put my focus into something that isn't baseball. So let's just see what we can do here. Yeah, it is interesting too. I think just as I've seen it, that that pattern is so different where with baseball, the, the elbow has to bend a lot earlier versus javelin. You keep that arm back and straight so long. And it makes me think actually, I think Jan Zelezny went the other way who has the world record in javelin. And I want to say he got a tryout with the Braves at some point. And I think they said he was just smoking it, like throwing heat, but I think it was going like over the backstop or something like it was going over the catcher or whatever. Just couldn't like get it down a hill after throwing the javelin upwards at that higher angle all those years. I've heard some stories. I don't know if they're actually real or not of like, I think it was like a 400 yard, 400 foot throw with like a golf ball. And like he was mid to upper eighties off the mound, having no you know ability to get downhill. But it is like interesting learning how to throw the javelin now. It's like one, you're kind of driving in supination the whole time. So mm. I'm like pitching, yeah. you have like sometimes pronators and supinators, like the ability to be behind the ball or kind of drive the hand in supination. And so because of the spear, you have to like hold it in supination. And I'm I'm learning from guys like Kevin Foster, Mike Stein, on like the length of the pull for javelin is important, where you have this, you know, massive spear you're trying to throw that's a pound. Um, and you're trying to throw as far as possible. Whereas I think you can compensate more with a baseball because it's so small and so mm, little, like yeah. five ounces. I think the body can compensate to throw throw the ball fast. Whereas with a spear, if you, you know, you compensate, it's not going to go far. So I think that was something that I'm learning with throwing. It's like range days. They call them where you go out and like throw it, you know, 80% or something, seeing how easy you can throw it far. Um, just kind of like getting the patterning down has been huge in terms of just like figuring out, you know, the actual pattern that's needed to throw a javelin verse, you know, this tiny ball that I can just cheat and compensate and muscle up, you know, and, and just like try to throw it hard. Um, you're not going to do that with a spear. It's going to go like 20 meters and it's going to throw sideways. So it's been fun to like, okay, how can I contort or move my body around making this spear go, you know, as far as I possibly can, um, in supination, which has been, it's been fun. Yeah. So yeah, the supination being the more like externally rotated position, like in the yeah. versus. Yeah. So length, like super long arm. And then just like, because you're kind of holding there, there are a couple of different grips you can use. And I have, I haven't played around with all of them. There's like a four grip, which is more of like, your hand is underneath the javelin almost. And then you have the two other grips that are more like supination. You're kind of like holding it on the side. So it's like this massive external rotation and like hand is supinated, like holding it on the side. And it would be similar to how you'd throw like a slider or a curveball in baseball. And so like some guys can do that really well. And they're, you know, known as supinators um, that just can, they, the way that they impart force on the baseball is kind of like supinate a little bit. And so I, I'm now having theories about guys that may throw javelins better um, just based on how their body naturally is is able to like unwind in the throw. Yeah, I know I'm my upper body or my the way my like arms sit is more externally rotated. And then but to be normal, if you look at me from the front, my um, my hands almost kind of come towards the center. Alex Effer, when I was taking his course, called it like valgus arms or something. And I've been like very self-conscious of it since then. But I think about being a javelin thrower that put me in that position like that just felt so natural and normal where it was actually a little bit harder just 
kind of and because I did pitch a little bit when I was like 11 and 12 until I hit some batter my first time trying and then I don't know my coaches put me in again and then I just got like basketball and track after that pretty much but I felt um yeah like it was always a little bit more of a just a natural feel for me whereas the baseball something it was something to do with the internal rotation factor of the baseball itself that just made that javelin a little more natural piece for me I mean I love throwing when I was little and who knows maybe if I would have kept throwing baseball uh, or pitch <laughs> throwing baseball. That's, that's the thing. Uh, being a pitcher <laughs> through high yeah. school, maybe things would have changed a little bit, but just as it kind of naturally sat, I always just had that natural external rotation feel. Lucky you. Cause it probably would have worked out for baseball. <laughs> like I am the opposite where I am a pronator. Like I like to just be, and they call it like spinning efficient with a, a fastball, like pure backspin where I like to be behind the ball, mm. like through release. And so, you know, I could throw fastballs or four seams that have good efficiency, but when it came to throwing a curveball, I could try to throw as hard as possible. And my, my hand and my, you know, arm did not like being in that supinated position. Mm-hmm. And I would, it'd be like 20 miles an hour slower than my fastball where like some guys are like five to 10 off just because that's how their, you know, arm wants to naturally unwind. And so for me, it was like, again, learning the javelin, you know, hopefully I go back to throwing a baseball and I can rip, you know, breaking balls because you know, I've just been training javelin for the last six months and my, my body hopefully tries to figure out how to favor that position throwing. Yeah. So if I ever transition to, I don't think there's any sort of like, you know, there's like adult softball or whatever, but I don't think there's a whole lot of adult baseball leagues relative to softball. But if I ever pitch, uh, again, I would do curveballs would be my thing if I'm more externally rotated or something I'm yeah. more like suited towards. Yeah. It's just like basically if your hand's going to favor this like external rotated and supinated position, just anything that's going to do that curveball sliders some like seam shift sinkers like we've you know found when i was working at tread that guys you know pick that grip up and it's harder than they were throwing fastballs just because that's how they wanted to naturally throw the ball yeah with uh with javelin i'm curious i've had stefan jones on the show with cricket um i've seen a little bit of some of the pitching uh some of the different drills and setups uh with like the medicine ball and pitching um, but I am curious with like cricket, you get a run up, you know, and you're getting the run up and some of the crossovers and what, I, and I, I like thinking, and I think a theme of this show is not only pitching, but also multilateral athleticism, rotation, rotational power. And do you feel like, what is the value in the run and combining the run? Do you feel like there's application there to just, a, you know, standing start pitching and any favorite moments or drills or things you've learned that you think could cross over to somebody who might just be starting from a standing position. Yeah. So I actually wrote like an ebook basically on this hmm. reference, Stefan Jones in it. So it's basically, you know, combining some events are more linear. So you have like the, the javelin run up cricket bowling, and then you have like rotation where I would, I would call like golf or like just static rotation. Um, more so on the, I call the coil or clear. Basically you have elements of both. Some guys have more linear linearity on their throw. So you know, a javelin thrower who has more of a run-up. Um, and I think you had a good, you actually had a good uh, video on your Instagram of Holland, like running, like how rotation was the, oh, like, yeah. the primary driver initially. And then if you kind of watch some of those guys, it's like rotation at first, but then once it gets to a certain like speed, it becomes linear where it's just like impulse and you're reacting with forces. And so that was kind of the premise of the entire ebook was if you can figure out a way to get going obviously not as fast as a javelin thrower would be with a run-up, but if you can figure out a way called the drift and pitching, it's like mm. first move as you're going towards home plate, get as much momentum as possible. You won't have to rely as much on rotation because you've created so much linear momentum. And so 
it was like the premise was coil yeah. or clear, which is like rotation or linear, um, you know, clearing where you just like sell out for either the drift and getting to the lead leg or you're coiling as much as possible and using as much rotation in the throw as possible. So it's like, that's kind of how I bucketed my system of just like, you know, is a guy going to use linear momentum and sell out for the the lead leg block and kind of like managing collisions? Or is it going to be like create as much rotational velocity yeah. as possible to like unwind and unload that in the throw? Interesting. Yeah. No, I was always, um, I was always the the big rotator person. Like Jan Zelesny had the super wrap, like he would always wrap the javelin around him a lot. And I, I always struggled so much. And I, I don't want to make this so much just about the javelin specifically, but I think it would play into, I'm sure, like but baseball pitching, how long that step is and all those types of things. I always struggled immensely trying to convert into a longer block. This it was the, the rotation was my superpower. So I just really ramped that up. And I, I also tore my ulnar uh, collateral ligament my second year throwing. So that was a very short college career and it took a long time to recover. And there's um and I, I had other things going on than javelin. It was also very hard to find a field in Berkeley, California to throw a javelin around. But you know, it's something that I've actually come back to it recently. And it's been fun to try to apply some of the motor learning pieces to get that block. But I'd never actually heard anyone say that, like, th- like I like to think about it, like you have almost a well, like a well of your strengths. And that's the thing that you really can capitalize on. And so how would that uh, play into like what you would see in pitching with the standing start? Does it happen more like what happens in the windup motion, like, and then extrapolate it out? Or what are some of yeah. those conversions you see? Kind of digging it back, it like it's something easier done with the windup um, because it just you can create more momentum, but guys kind of learn it a little bit better from like the stretch position. So if you're able to kind of like shift your weight and get into kind of that drift longer, and and so it's like basically just thinking of you know, am I able to go towards um, home plate before I get into my back leg? That's just creating a bunch of like potential energy to then you can use down the chain. So it's more so that piece of you know, is my first movement going to be more rotation based of, you know, trying to get my pelvis to coil over my back leg as much as possible? Or am I just going to get as linear as possible and try to like get myself moving and then just prepare for the block where I can send energy up from the lead leg into the arm because of all this energy that I'm creating. So it's, it's kind of like, it's interesting to see there, obviously like the answer is both. There's going to be both pieces to it. Um, but that combination of, you know, 70, 30, 80, 20 of like, you know, what, what a guy's strengths are. And I am kind of curious too, for you, are you like a more lax, uh, mover? Like you, do you have a lot of mobility, like laxity? Oh yeah. Yeah. When I sprint, that's a big thing for me is actually the, my arms let out too much slack and it actually yeah. slows down the cycle. So part of me just even sprinting faster is finding ways to, uh, to basically take that slack out quicker and keep everything on timing. So and I think a lot of that's just when I grew up, like just loving pitching and throwing when I was like a kid, like eight, nine, like watching pitchers and trying to emulate them. And that was the thing I was best at. That that laxity definitely stuck with me. Even the way I high jumped and everything it was like a long, slow kick. Like, And people would make fun of me because it threw all these weird rotations into the high jump. And so my life now almost, and it's it's kind of sad because I'm not, um, I'm 40 now. And so I'm not quite what I was when I was 21, obviously. Uh, from just a raw capacity, but it is fun to learn how to or to experiment to play with uh, letting things come back faster and seeing how that goes. But sorry, I'm I'm being like super long winded, but my my natural abilities are certainly much more like uh, you could say loosey goosey for lack of a better term. 
Do you feel like you've gotten stiffer over time in like a good way, maybe for some athletic athletic events? Yeah, funny enough, I would say as I've uh, sprinting has been much, I mean, it's always been a big, big thing on my radar. But I think in the more, I would say in the last five years, it's been one of the primary focal points of just my own workouts, like twice a week, I'm doing sprinting. And I'm always at least one of those. And oftentimes, too, I'm usually exploring the sprinting in various ways. And one of the low-hanging fruits I found for me is making it more um, coming from the center, uh, their, their origin point coming from the center to keep the timing better so I don't get too strung out. And in that process, I do, I've actually seen my musculature change from someone who's more externally rotated, almost maybe, yeah, like that just long, lanky, like a pitcher who likes throwing breaking balls type build to someone that actually has more musculature that's more like you would see in a 100-meter sprinter. Um, not entirely, but that physical change has accompanied the way that I've also engaged uh, sprinting and running. That is interesting. And I'm sure you like ISOs, like your body responds well to ISOs too. Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I think uh, the big thing that I've gotten, if you're talking like the long duration stretch range ones, a lot of that's just finding that expansiveness and tissue quality that uh, has really been a marker of my athleticism throughout my like you could say my peak years and even now it's but and then the um the like max isos explosive or yielding i i always like those for the nervous system too so i like both of them but yeah the the expansive stuff i do really well with yeah i think when i i trained with brady uh volmering a couple years ago and he was big on like the five minute isos and so that was something that i hated doing them but also always felt like good after just like a five minute lunge or like trying to do it hold as long as possible in a push up. And so it's like, I wasn't great at them, but I also always felt like good after. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they're amazing for that. Like such, they're, they're a game changer, in my opinion. It's just getting people to, finding, finding the path for people to feel that optimally is, is the skill there. And because it, it usually works pretty well for a lot of people, but some people need, yeah, different, different rep ranges and things like that, or different time introductions <laughs> to it all. Uh, versus, yeah, just, I mean, I think five minutes is, Five minutes is awesome, but it, it's getting people there in a way is also is also something that's a skill. I, I was going to ask you a little bit, uh, Devin, about like so that the linear, like the glider and the rotational person. I was kind of curious um, how that breaks up in, in like if you watch like they're running, if you watch things they do in the gym. Are there things or categories that you see? Uh, I guess we all like putting things in buckets, right? Like oh yeah, like, you know, elastic and power and this and that, you know, like it's, it's fun to do that. And I know not everyone's going to sit in the exact same bucket and there's going to be iterations or yeah, wide narrow infrasternal angle. But do you, is there just general tendencies that you tend to see from people who like love winding it up through the, the rotation up top versus people who might be more that, hey, I'm going to glide out forward, hit that block and who are really good at that blocking? Because I've always found like, because I didn't have that in Javelin, like that, you like Johannes Vetter getting that foot way out there. I mean, even in high jump, my, um, I would say my last step was always a little bit shorter, which people like, like a lot of track coaches like that. They're like, oh, do a short last step. But then the person who's designed for the loss, the longer last step that messes up, you know, there, there are those athletes who do well with the longer one. And so, um, and I always wish I would have explored that a little bit more. And I wonder what yeah. I did naturally. But anyways, yeah, curious on your thoughts on that, those universal principles. I'd say it's, it would be easy to say, yeah, watch a guy run and then like just, you know, tell him he needs to rotate more. But honestly, is most of it would be just be trial and error of like, 
you know, getting them to feel what it's like to do either, like figure out what it's like to have more momentum in the throw. And then is, you know, what's the feedback? Like if you're, you know, if you've been training, like, you know, I have for the last six months with an additional, you know, run behind me, I've gotten super linear, you know, maybe I've, you know, maxed out of that linear side and now it's back time to go into that rotational, you know, element of it. Like I said before, I think it is a little bit of both and it's more so finding a guy's limiting factor currently and then kind of just like tapping into that yeah in the simplest possible way too and you could even liken this to sprinting is just do things that are a little bit of both you know like in sprinting you can do like a stride ladder to work on the linear uh you could even say the word projection aspects of linear sprinting and then you could also do some rotational movements like with a medicine ball and so you could just do both (laughs) and on the most base simple level and then see how people problem solve each one of those so I'd be curious, yeah, in, in maybe something like pitching, I mean, maybe it could be, you know, I wonder if there's like that simple starting point as well. Yeah, I had, uh, I written two like progressions out of a coil progression, a clear progression, basically like here's a, you know, a rocker drill, such as a drill in pitching where you're just stationary basically. And either you're just uh, picking more up and down, staying kind of in that like vertical plane, or it's you're coiling into that back leg. Uh, and just like feeling rotation. And so is it slowly progressing from a constraint, uh, most constrained to like least constrained, like dynamic drills of, you know, backpedaling into doing like, they call it turn and burn, which is like, yeah, uh, it's like a pull down or like a javelin throw, but it, you're backpedaling into it. So that's honestly something I haven't tried it myself yet, but something I was brainstorming for like javelin throwers. Mm-hmm. Most guys are full linear sprinting before. If a guy needs to train rotation more, you know, he could either backpedal into a javelin or train something like the shot put. So that's something now mm-hmm. that I'm learning more. So researching events besides like pitching and baseball, it's like, how do these other, you know, track and field sports produce distance, which could then, you know, transfer into velocity uh, in pitching. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw you posted uh, Ryan Krauser too with the shot put. And I do think studying, like if we are doing in the movement space in any form, it, definitely pays dividends to study all forms of that or from yeah from shot put to javelin to whatever there's always something to learn from especially from the best you know they're always doing something that just works so well i saw that start with krauser had like i think blood clots in his legs too like the day before a couple oh, wow. days before the event and he still like performed it but yeah it was interesting like watching videos of him on how he's able to like again it's a little linear but a lot of rotation goes into the shot put and then you have like Vetter guys that are full sprinting and even javelin they like track how fast you're sprinting yeah. into it um but something that i'm learning too that's kind of we have used in baseball is just how much you know is too much where the guy ends up yeah. you know if full sprinting down you know the track to be able to launch the javelin are you slowing down because your body can't like transition that force from sprinting to the crossover steps into the throw where I've I've been pretty much just hammering crossovers uh, with Mike Stein, mm-hmm. but that's something. The next next part of it is going to be that sprinting transitional period of full run up into crossovers into launch, which again another skill, but could be important to kind of tra- you know learn something from it. Yeah, that's that's got to be something fun though too. If you've been pitching for so long, to do the running, the skills of the transition steps are so like they go so far beyond. Hey, do these three things, you know, like, like so often it's like, we're coaching a skill. Hey, we'll do this, you know, heel up, knee up, toe up and sprinting is the easiest one to make fun of, but like, Hey, do these three things and you'll, you'll have it. And 
the transition in any throw is so much more complex. You realize so fast that just do these three things is not the thing. It's kind of like even any transition, really, I think even um, like the second pole in an Olympic lift is very similar. That's something that's very hard to say, well, just do these three things and you'll get it. There's so much like feel in that transition uh, or even like the curve in a high jump or something in, in preparation to take off. It's those, yeah, those transition states are the ones that it's almost someone should list them out, you know, like here's all the transition states that exist in sport that you're probably not going to be able to coach by saying, do these three things. You know, it's a feel they really teach you to the art of coaching, the art of movement and the art of learning. Yeah. And then it's like, I think in baseball, you have like the constraint drills, but like constraining the transitional period and kind of like figuring out what that, you know, transition looks like. You have the second pole of like the crossover steps, just been hammering. Yeah. Baseball, I never had to do any type of crossover work at all. It was mostly just like, you know, figure out how to throw this ball hard and try a bunch of different, you know, drills off a mound to do it. It wasn't ever like sprint, then do a crossover, mm-hmm. then just try to launch the balls or to, yeah, the javelin as far as possible, which in, in baseball, we do have like pull downs. But I think I was telling you before, it's like you can't compensate with a javelin. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you know, the ball being in your hand, you could, you know, manipulate your body as much as possible because you don't have to work around a one pound spear that's just you know whatever six or seven feet long that you're throwing so it's i think that that becomes a trickier part too is the stability the shoulder has to have to be able to hold that position um in that drawback position before you can actually launch it yeah if you think about like uh that a tractor well like franz bosch the tractor well fluctuator landscape that's in that the book that he wrote there's like these these wells of that that attract or the commonality and it's you know a, a five a baseball is five ounces right something like that and so it's like that's a small well a one pound spear is a lot bigger well you know and you think about how that you self-organize around that whatever the depth of that well is um i've never thought about it that way with throwing but it makes sense to me yeah you can just and that's well that's the interesting part about baseball is you have so many feel like with javelin there are a couple different ways and so you kind of just see they're you know guys are going to throw a little differently but you have this like the common you know checkpoints that guys have to get into a javelin to be able to throw the javelin far whereas baseball i think there's more so you know a wide variety of positions guys can get into because the ball is so small you just have to make ball go fast so it's like i'm going to contour my body in these different positions but at the end of the day it's a five ounce ball and i have like all this body to be able to throw it as hard as possible and so there are less, yeah, less movement options with the javelin than there would be a baseball because it's just, yeah, the constraint that you have. Yeah, I'm sure that explains why you have people, pitchers who end up throwing more like kind of sidearm or even submarine. Like you would never see that ever in javelin. <laughs> hey, the submarine javelin. But I mean, it, I know Kevin Foster had mentioned like even Zelezny, though, his release for the javelin was way more out to the side than we would think. You know, usually it's like, typical coaching a lot of times is right over the top make sure you go right over the top and maybe that's a good place to start to be honest because if i had a bunch of you know 12 or 14 year olds out with a bunch of spears and just let them throw it like side kind of it's not sidearm how he throws it, but you know what i'm saying like that would probably be a disaster you know <laughs> they're probably a better place to start with that over the top and then explore from there but baseball it seems like you could self-organize over time much more naturally in accordance with whatever your strengths and your body structure was Yeah, I think it's also the constraint of the game. Like with baseball, you're trying to get a hitter out. And so like the, although velocity may be the number one, like predictor of success, if you throw sidearm and can get out at like a high rate, then it doesn't matter, 
you know, how hard you need to throw. Mm, whereas yeah. like javelin is pretty much only outcome based on how far does the javelin go. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of the, we had a spine guy that we used to go to uh, when I was in Charlotte, Dr. Nevin Markle, and he works with a lot of Panthers guys. Um, and he would basically say, you know, the, the spine's going to, the spine is going to set the plane. And so although it looks like it's, you know, three quarters uh, over the top for Zelezny, it's just the amount of like side, yeah, side bending yeah, in there too. Influence that like release position. And so guys, you know, guys who can get more side bend in the throw, it looks like it's more over the top and guys that get less side bend, looks like it's sidearm. It's, it's kind of like you want the spine to influence the arm and not the shoulder, because I think that's when you get into trouble. Like, you know, your shoulder's only going to have so much violent range of motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, above like, you know, 120 degrees of abduction, like you're just going to be forcing at that point. Yeah. Is that, um, with that, uh, side bending, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because yeah, that's, that's, it's like every action has the reaction. The side bending is what created that like lateralish arm position for him. Is that something, a constraint that you would explore in just throwing athletes? Like, you know, just various amounts of, uh, side, side bending action, frontal plane, like it, it kind of playing around with, I think so often probably we'd think, right, like um, other things would be more common in pitching coaching, but is that something that is also a variable that could be explored in um, in that format? Yeah, so that's something that we learned um, when, he, when Dr. Never went through it. It was basically like um, if you have a little bit of like lower doses um, and side bend, it creates rotation. And so it's like guys can create mm-hmm. some rotation through the spine by that movement. And less about like pure counter rotation of the torso. And so it's more so, you know, some guys, you know, favor that side bend position versus rotation. And you kind of want to play around with what, you know, with coaching feels the best, but also like what creates the best outcomes there too. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Plyomat. The Plyomat is a jump testing device that allows you to instantly receive ground contact times, jump heights, reactive strength measurements and more in your training populations. It's easy to use, accurate, and affordable. And an awesome feature that I love about the plyo mat is it easily allows a connection of not just one mat, but you can string multiple mats together for use in things like multi-hurdle hops and bounding situations. I absolutely love the plyo mat, recommend it. And to check it out, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Yeah, it, it kind of strikes me that maybe, like I mentioned, if you were really good at rotation, I wonder if you, if there's a possibility you could self-organize all those years without really getting into side bending much, you know, and like all of a sudden you are exposed to that a little bit. Wow, this is some interesting possibilities here, you know, and, and just like putting that in the tank. Um, I mean, again, I, I'm just, this is just me kind of even just speculating, just thinking about things and making connections just because that's not, um, and I was only saying it too, in my own javelin throwing, that's something, I, I bought a javelin last year and it was best around and I, I think Kevin made that post and I was like, it does feel a lot better to side bend and throw it kind of like Zelezny does. And just like experimenting with that every other throw or something, you know, and I, I hadn't otherwise, I wouldn't have otherwise started to put that in my system, you know, and I'm glad I did for the exploration factor. I think good too. The video that Kevin had was a good representation of like the side bend leaning, because I think if you were to purely try to sidearm a javelin, I think you'd either snap your UCL. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, you know, some crazy direction. 
So it's all like, yeah, the, the side bend creates that angle that allows him to, you know, perceive over the top, but is actually not. And so it's like, there's a baseball group called 108 performance. I think they guys have, you know, been trying to do over the top throwing forever. Once they just feel themselves like be with and throw sidearm, they kind of just cue them to throw sidearm. And a lot of guys throw harder hmm. because they, they've been coached that like over the top all these years. It's like once they're, you know, told to do something else, throw a sidearm, feel whippy, match the plane of rotation, they end up gaining velocity just because, you know, it's net more natural for them. And it's kind of like they haven't trained it before. Yeah. It may, that brings me into, and again, I, I like things that can go universal is Dan John has talked about same, but different. And his example in the easy strength book was like, Hey, Tommy Kono did Olympic lifting, but then he did bodybuilding in the off season. But in some ways, like a baseball throw over the top, like very over the top versus like a sidearmish type throw is kind of same but different, you know. And so it it's it's interesting. And I, I also say that in context of, um, I, I don't know if this would fit in, but I really like the exploring the or amplifying the error type thing. Like if you are trying to do one thing well, and you said, "Hey, do the other thing." <laughs> I don't. It almost feeds you all the other information. Like I've worked with swim coaches who loved. Um, doing backstroke, like to warm up for freestyle. They'd be like, yeah, we did five 100s backstroke. And then the freestyle was like on fire. I was like, I, you know, I've never had the capacity to do that swim workout. Well, I usually I'm almost drowning after the warm up <laughs> with most people's warmth. So I, you know, but um, it's interesting to think about how, yeah, one skill can potentiate another, regardless of what it is too. It could go for a lot of a broad brush of things. Yeah, I think wonder if it opens up like more neurological pathways to that, just like, you know, movement solutions, things like that, where a guy, you know, hasn't explored throwing sidearm, throwing different positions. That's like an exercise too of guys, yeah, play around in different arm slots, you know, moving around in different directions. And, you know, what feel is that going to be? Is that going to lead to, which could end up being, you know, the difference maker in them throwing harder or not? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting area to, um, yeah, like I think that's that's one that it will, that really could go uh, down the rabbit hole too, because there's a lot of I think there's sports and ways you could take it, and there's probably some nuances too. Uh, like if you like if all you did was throw the javelin and then you went back to throwing the baseball, like two years of throwing javelin, and you went back to throwing baseball, it would probably get kind of weird if you're like a pro level pitcher versus there's, things that are in the scope of baseball itself. There was one guy that was at driveline Ian Walsh who did that for like six months, so he went. He'd only hit, I think, 93 before. And for six months straight, he just threw javelin and did bench press and kind of more like a javelin thrower. And his first day off the mound, he hit 95. Did he really? So, That's amazing. Yeah, he just had, had tapped into something else, which I think that was kind of the the reasoning behind one of the other trade coaches, you know, telling me to do that, to try and do that was like, whatever way, you know, has gotten you this far of throwing a baseball, like mm. your body, like pattern that. So at this point with, you know, 28 years of experience, you know, or, you know, 20 years of experience throwing a baseball specifically, you kind of have to forget throwing a baseball is like, and figure out something else. And then when you come back to it, hopefully, you know, you get the new approach for it becomes a new thing. Even with lifting, I think that you get away far enough away from it that when you come back, yeah. it actually helps bring it all together. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I think that's to the value of um, elimination and reintroduction of variables. I think sometimes coaches and i know i've even been here at various points throughout my life um and then in, even in like the college coaching setting is you have all these things in the program and sometimes you get so attached to them you don't want to take them out 
you know, like, ah, I got to have this in, I got to have this in, I got to have this thing in. And then I very purposefully will take out things, especially, honestly, things that athletes like, like a lot of times in track, like athletes like Olympic lifting. It, It does fit with track and field really well, I find. And I will not let people Olympic lift generally for a while, partly because it's like, well, one, I want you to be more sensitized to it when we do get to it. But then two, I also want you to learn to function without it. Because sometimes it's like we almost get so attached to some of our favorite exercises. We, we don't, it's like we, because we all did this skill before we found those special exercises, you know, like we were all pitchers or jumpers or sprinters or basket, whatever it was before we found these things. And then sometimes we get so attached to them. I also think there's just something to not having those. But then like you said, like to do a different version of the skill, I, I, I think it probably would be similar in track. Like if someone just did high jump their whole life and hit a wall, it's like, hey, go do triple jump for a few months and I'll see you later. You know, like for yeah. a lot of athletes, that could be a big positive. It's almost like unless you're the absolute, like you are so built to do this thing, like you're an absolute freak, totally built to do it. And your body just self-organizes its way. But otherwise, it's almost like your body, it's like giving your body bandwidth to find a different way to do that thing, you know? Yeah. I think it's like the kind of joke about manipulating stimulus, so like the stimulus that a, guy, a guy is getting, especially too for throwing now, the, the more that we've talked and I think about it, like if I'm trying this position of like deep pull, maximum like external rotation, and if anything too, throwing a one pound object for a year or for six months straight probably going to give my body a little more external rotation like in the throw as well so if i just go back to a five ounce baseball probably be able to you know if i can figure it out again throw it harder just purely by that like the the simplicity of just been throwing an overload object for a year that if i can like move similarly i would you know baseball that i have with a javelin like i should be able to throw it harder but yeah that is the the fun part on the coach side is like you can you know change out different exercise you're manipulating the stimmies that a guy's you know or a group is getting so like trying to the, the right thing at the right time is kind of what you're playing around for at least like generally yeah with with pitching too it seems like because pitching like you said it's a light ball so there's a lot of options too it seems like there's almost it would just strike me that with maybe there's more ways you know if in terms of how to throw 95 miles an hour or something that maybe there's more different ways and options to leverage what the body has than maybe other skills like i think something like sprinting even things like you know that are a little more complex like jumping or jumping off one leg i think there's still options but there's yeah. not nearly as many i feel like in throwing there's way more you know like there's a lot more ways to like oh i, I ran out here well let me try this pathway because it's like upright and all these ranges and degrees of freedom versus other skills I'll say that too. I think there's probably a million ways to throw 60 miles an hour. And then as you get to like 90, oh, there's yeah. probably like Funnels you know, a couple hundred ways to throw 90. And as you get, because I think you learn that the more you watch the highest mm. level of throwers, and it's pretty similar to like the guys in Javelin that throw like 95 plus meters or like 90 plus meters. There's like specific, not positions you want to hit, but there are specific, like the body can move so many ways. Like you're starting to limit the number of options that there are to get the body to get this like 95 miles an hour, hundred miles an hour. Like you watch the guys that throw 104. I think there's only probably, you know, you know, a couple mm-hmm. different ways to throw 104, but then as you kind of get towards that, like 90 miles an hour, and that's why I think, you know, 99% of people that play high school baseball, if you give it enough time, I think you can throw 90. I think that's one of the questions people like to ask. Do you think everyone can throw 90? And I'd say like 99% of people 
depends on how much time you want to give it. Cause you could give it five years. And I think some people can get you to throw 90 miles an hour, but it just depends on how much time you want to take. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that compared to like, um, like something like track and field and sprinting, where if you're slow twitch and you have short legs or something, you're, there's not, you could dig up all the options and you're probably yeah. not going to run, you know, sub 11 or whatever, no matter what way you take. But I feel like in baseball, there's, you know, to at least be competitive, like on a collegiate level or something, even if you're not, you know, air quotes, a great athlete, you could find some way in yeah. some pathway to get it done. And that's maybe the cool thing about it. You know, like there's this, a, a greater expanse of exploration to find how to get that, the, the, the but then, of course, to throw a hundred totally different story, that's more like being an elite, elite track sprinter when there's also less options there. Yeah. Then it's like you look into it and most like, and a lot of the guys that throw a hundred miles an hour are all like six, four, six, five mm-hmm. plus. And you just look at lever length and like the guys, the cooler guys to watch and try to figure out how they throw hard are the guys that are like five, eight and like have to do some pretty crazy mm-hmm. things with their body to create that velocity. Whereas, you know, if I see a guy that's six four and halfway athletic, I just give him shit for not throwing ninety five or hundred. It's just like <laughs> you should throw way yeah, harder yeah. because, like, your your baseline is just way more, you know, advanced than someone who is a lot shorter, just lever length wise. But yeah, all all things considered, the same. A guy taller versus guy shorter, they get taller. Guy's going to throw harder, and so it's like kind of that the fun thing to just joke around about. Like you, if you're halfway athletic, you can your arm moves decently well. There's just no reason why you shouldn't throw 95 if you're like six three six four plus. Yeah, yeah. That's that's right. There's different coaching avenues. Maybe one is technical, but then the other is make fun of the person because they're they're you should be able to do this. That's the main yeah. one. No coaching, just make fun of them until they they throw as fast as they should be. <laughs> Give and take to it. Some guys that is the like the one thing that they'll actually you know actually respond to. Just a yeah. little, little crap. Whereas like some guy you need like yeah five minute long explanation where other guys it's just you should throw away harder just do it and then they can just do it yeah and fun oh yeah yeah it's it is amazing you know this is maybe a little bit of a tangent but it's just it's funny i was um i was just watching uh walking to i'm being i'm gonna be coaching high school track here uh this upcoming uh spring and just even walking to the track meeting being in the track environment like i feel my body like actually changing the way I walk changes. Like I start to feel more pressure on kind of that like fifth met head that like spring off the ground. It's just something about the environment even. And I just go back and I think about all the, even just the, like you said, like the coach, like make it, if you're the type that responds to that, like, you know, getting someone to make fun of you a little bit or motivate you in the way that's meaningfully motivating for you or be in that environment. And sometimes the things, the power and the technique can kind of for that, you know, come together in the way that made sense for you. And you don't always need that technical thing to encourage it. And I, I think back, cause it's, it's funny, like the feeling where I'm in that coaching environment, um, and how much more was that the case when I was like in college walking into a meet, you smell the track, you know, and, and I've always, it's like, I become more and more aware that athlete who just does it, what are the things that help you to just do it? And, and just seeing, what happens? Yeah, without saying anything or anything. I, I, that was a total rabbit trail. Sorry about that. No, I, I like that. The yeah, like the self organization, environmental. Like I think that I'm like, I don't want to just say that I used to. I just only my only coaching cue is giving guys crap. But I would there would be some guys that would ask for feedback, and I would just tell them like that's a level three or a level four question. Like let's wait mm, till we get there. Yeah. So like I think yeah, the the self organization like allowing the environment to kind of dictate where you're at is like. 
level one. I think you kind of have to explore, yeah. kind of like figure out, because I think that was in my own career, uh, intent, like intent to throw hard, intent to do anything, like mm-hmm. intent to throw hard was the thing that on top of strength and conditioning kind of got me that first jump of like 77 to like 88 miles an hour. So it's like, if I had gotten coached at that point, like it may have helped, but also may have like the wrong coaching would have yeah. hurt me. And so like, I think there's a level one to just like athletics, which would just be like, let the athlete figure out his own body and figure themselves out before anybody says anything. Cause I think that will probably do more harm than good. And then you can kind of progress to like the more tailored coaching of like things you're trying to see in the movements. But yeah, like I think there was a guy, Lance Wheeler, who had, who a long time ago had talked about when you're playing catch with your kid, like they're watching you just like elbow and just like tricep extending, pushing it back to you is going to be how they learn how to throw because they're just watching you do it yeah. back. And so I think his thing was just like, put all the balls in the ground and just have his kid. He set up um, one of those kiddie pools in his backyard. He just had his kid throw it as hard as he could against the wall and just react to the sound and try to make it louder and louder and louder mm-hmm. over time. And so I think what helped me was my dad was Irish, came over to the U.S. when he was 23, so I'd never thrown a baseball before, like learned baseball. So he kind of learned it together. There was no coaching from it. It was just mostly try to throw you know, as hard as you can, have fun, and then and I just like build that up over time until we get to a point where you actually need coaching. Yeah. So I think so often like youth coaches, high school coaches, they just want to like project their own insecurities, their own coaching philosophy on an athlete rather than just like, why don't you for the next couple of years, just like try to throw as hard as you can and whatever happens, happens. And, you know, when we get to that point where you need a level two or level three coaching, then we'll have that conversation. Just like, I'm not just going to project you know, how you should learn or how you should throw on someone who's never done that before. Yeah. I, I love that level one, two, three coaching. Like I've never heard it laid out like that before. Um, the thing that it made me think of was Dan John had said something and it might've been the first podcast I did with him a long time ago, but it's always stuck with me. And it was something to the tune of until you throw the discus, like 180 feet or something in high school, like don't ask a bunch of questions about periodization. Don't ask all this, you know, about it. Just, just throw 180, do the basics and throw 180 first. And then we can start talking about some of these other things. And so it's like the same thing you're saying there. Yeah. You got to like earn it. You got to earn. Yeah. Yes. Ever coach again. I think the, um, I listened to a podcast with, I think a Schlet strength, the guy that was with the sons and now he's with yeah. Texas. And he was saying, it becomes, it's like a simple stage of like early athletics, simpler, like try to keep it simple as possible. Just throw hard, you know, move your body athletically, don't cue. And then there's like a stage where, you know, you have to get that level two of like, if a college guy is at 88 and he wants to get to pro ball and like self-organization isn't going to cut it anymore. He's like self-organized his way as, mm-hmm. as far as he possibly can right now. Yeah. And then it becomes time to actually implement some sort of coaching. So I think the, yeah, the first stage has to be that of like, you have to give them and I think it's just giving athletes a chance. Like you got to give them a chance to figure it out. You got to trust them to figure it out rather than just like putting and, you know, projecting yourself on them because it's just like going to lead to, you know, not great solutions. And then his last stage is like, then it gets more simple after, because once yes. the guys, you know, gets to 95 to hundred, it's like, don't mess them up. So it's like, there's like that middle ground level too, or it's like, that is where maybe the coaching gets into play where you self-organize as far as you can. Now we can start to like hammer some specific individual movements if we need to. And then it's just don't mess them up at that point. They have kind of what they need to. The only way they're going to get worse is if you tell them something and get some worse after that. Yeah. I love that. Where did you, did you get that from somebody or is that something you kind of put together over time? Like the level one, two, three coaching, like, like what are you ready yeah, for from I, that perspective? I would say like it started off as like 
someone asking me a question about their back leg um, in the gym. And I would just be like, just make up a number. Like that's level 10 stuff. You're only level one right now. Yeah. Like you're only level two right now. Like, and that now it just kind of turned into just like the, yeah, the, the levels to just like coaching feedback and when guys actually need things, because it's just, I mean, when you have guys over a long period of time, like some athletes for four or five years, you just kind of understand that you don't want to give them everything or give them all you think in the first year, like they have to still be able to develop, you know, themselves. And then you kind of just like sprinkle those things in over time when they get to that point and not just like a, here's day one, do this because I told you to like, there's, you know, and all depends on too, where the athlete's at. Cause you know, if you're a college, a skill coach or, you know, professional coach guys have had 23 years of something else. And so you don't really have that organization phase as, as much as you do as a youth, you know, athlete. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really good. It, it makes me even think too about, um, with my own journey uh, and high jump specifically, I did a lot of events, but I know with high jump, my self-organization was trying to dunk. And it's funny because what that landed me, like I said, I'm whippy. So, and I played soccer. So it was like plant and a lot of a really good high jumpers, they will plant and they could still be a power jumper where they might like kind of drag their takeoff foot. But the the higher the bar gets, the less you can really do that. I mean, some people still do have a little bit more of a draggy leg, but I I was like the extreme. Like my arms would whip like straight far back behind my body, really long ground contact times, basically just trying to get uh, I think my foot got and ankle got really, really strong. And so it was basically like, put this really f- strong foot and ankle down and a big, long whip that goes around it. And that got me. I mean, when I was in high school, I, I jumped six feet eight and w- did pretty well. But I s- basically got stuck there. Like I got stuck at about that height. First couple of years of college training weren't very good anyways, to be honest. I was trying to be like an athletic training major, which was a horrible idea. So I didn't even, the practices with the team weren't consistent. And I did improve my technique a little bit. I think I jumped six, eight, and three quarters at the end of year two. But it was year three that when I went back with the team and training was just really good. Everything, training was much higher level. Other events got better. Lots of things got better. But my coach, um, the assistant coach had told me, and he knew he was so good, like, like mentally and emotionally. He knew I was a kid that struggled with being told how to do things. Like if he said, hey, you have to run the curve like this, I, I would have probably checked out. Like, I don't want it. I, it doesn't feel good or whatever. I would have not done well with that. But what he said was he would just tell me of the these like Russian high jumpers, you know, and the Russians were like the best high jumpers or whatever. So he would tell me like, oh, well, one drill they do is they put the bar like a foot below the best and you just speed jump over. You try to go for distance or whatever. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. So I was always doing it on my own. Like he he sparked the autonomy or he knew I had that high autonomy need. But anyways, just that drill and doing that, even outside of saying anything else, I allowed me to, like we were talking about with trying the different, like the different throw or the javelin throw, that helped me to self-organize my high jump technique that at the end of the year, I was actually doing things with my arms in the takeoff that I didn't even, they just kind of emerged. Like it like, oh, this would feel good. And I did that. And it just, I was blown away 6'10 routinely and then eventually jumped seven foot that year. And uh, long story short is I started with the journey of self-organization. It only got me to basically six, eight, six, nine. At that point, I needed someone else to, and, and ultimately was delivered to me in a way that worked for me. Like, and the coach was brilliant enough to know that, that I needed that. But I think if I would have gone in high school, no one coached me in high school. I, our high school track coach was the distance coach or the hurdles coach. So it's like, Hey, here's the hijab pick, go figure it out. And I think if I would have had someone like being like, all right, this is how you high jump in. 
short last step and do your block like this and your arms like this. I wonder a lot if I would have, you know, that's like going backwards, right? Where you get all the coaching first and then I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I kind of feel like I might have held myself back if it would have gone in the reverse order or, or I got like the level threes first, not level one. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think then you're just limited. Like you, we talked about like applying the stimulus at the right time or like stimulus at the right time. It's like the stimulus can be coaching. Like you can coach a guy into the stimulus. So it's like, yeah, if you had gotten overcoached or, you know, told exactly what to do from the beginning, you wouldn't have the potential to like play around with all those possibilities to figure out and get to a point where you stall, which I think people like avoid like getting to a point where they're stalling. But I think Mm -hmm. that can actually be super beneficial for guys to like actually take something as far as they possibly can by themselves, then reach a stalling Mm -hmm. point and then reach out for help. And I think people reach out too early, um, too soon and don't like allow themselves to really get to that point. Um, but I think, yeah, it's like that your coach just gave you a drill basically said, and in, in baseball, we kind of like different constrained drills where I was talking about like the coil or clear progressions that people have to kind of feel different things. And I think as a coach, it's honestly better to just say like, here's this drill with little feedback. And again, let the guy, you know, self-organize or kind of figure out a way how he wants to do it on his own. Uh, and then you can kind of just like work through some specific things if you really need to, but I think far too often, like coaches could just be a lack of trust or something else where they just like feel like they have to project their own coaching on an athlete and less so have this give and take where you trust the athlete just as much to do what's right and kind of figure it out. And then you kind of work through it rather than just like do this because I told you so. This is how it has to be done. This is how, you know, Zelazny did it and you have to throw like this. Where I think it's understanding the person and having a good relationship with the person and knowing what type of, uh, for information or how, how the guy needs to be told. Cause you, you know, again, your guy gave you a drill. Like I think a lot of times an athlete, a way that a coach coaches is super important for how an athlete learns and listens, especially like teaching. I was telling my brother like last week, I think if a lot of the teachers I had in high school had taught the way I wanted to be learned, I would have learned a lot more subjects, mm-hmm. like a lot more things because I would have been interested in like how they teach. So I'm learning Spanish now. And the teacher that I have is like uses emojis or like my style of learning. So I'm I'm way more into it than I would be if I was taking, you know, a Spanish class and oh, just yeah. some writing while I'm trying to figure it out. So I think how a coach coaches, which kind of has allowed me to be more of a broad, like build a relationship, not have a specific style of like, I need to tell you my way. It's more so like build a relationship and you're going to tell me how you want to learn over time and then we'll figure it out together. Yeah, I like that. Even with the emojis, that would have helped me out a lot. I a course I took uh, that I really enjoyed uh, recently, or at least in the last maybe it was a year ago, but somewhat recently was uh, DJ Mirakami and Chris Chamberlain's course. Uh, they just called like Torque Chains, I think it was called, and it was based off of Julian Pinot's a lot of it. Um, basically, are things either internal torque or external torque in nature, and things that are external torque start on the inside of the body and move towards the outside. Things that are internal start more on the outside and direct things towards the center line and but which honestly that's a mouthful and yeah. and i i'm becoming more and more aware of the importance of brevity as i grow in uh my coaching and being an educator and how important it is to have that clear line the simplest communication one thing that those two did so brilliantly 
was they just called those fire and ice. And, and it was all based on things that could be done with emojis on the phone. And then there was some other ones like smoke. There was like a spiraling. But if you just see fire and ice, it's just so much easier in, the, in that learning process in so many ways than saying, and I think the internal and external torque can easily work too. But there's something that's just kind of cool. Like if you just think, hey, it's a bunch of high school students or something, like they'll see the two emojis and they're like, I, I think that could click very easily for that type of group, you know, and that would have been good for me too. Yeah, there was a podcast I listened to about like people who like 90% of people voted they want to be entertained when they learn. And so it's more so like, how can you entertain someone while they're learning? And so acronyms like Coiler Clear, something super simple that a guy can just remember, you know, when they need to, especially for pitchers when, you know, guys are on the mound during a game, you know, yelling a cue on like internal twerk or something like that. Whereas they've had this like repetitive, you know, either cue or some sort of thing they can go back to uh, when things go wrong. And that's kind of, again, what I've been big on with a lot of guys is just, you know, here's a couple of things that, you know, you can remember. So when things go wrong, you have this like blueprint or map and they're usually simple, like fire and ice, things like that, that you can go back to when you need to. So that when you're stuck or, you know, it's the middle of the season and, and shit hits the fan or things go wrong, just like keep it simple, go back to it. And you like have, you know, your few things that, you know, you need. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, what is it with like the the brain can only handle like what one maybe two things at a time and anything beyond that it just the it's like a logarithm how ineffective everything instantly becomes so it's almost if you can just have that one little even like a symbol like so that's like a myth not like a myth like a false reality but like something that's just a lot of information condensed into one small story or one small thing you know that that's there's a lot of value um with that i i had something just i was just going to say this one thing as well um with the yeah the self-organization and allowing and giving time for that is i think so often and i've had other conversations on this podcast about this but in like a private sector setting like an athlete shows up and or or just anybody you know it could be a golf lesson it could be a pitching lesson it could be whatever is there's an expectation of instruction like it'd be so interesting to think all right, I'm going to pay for this lesson. I'm going to go get a tennis lesson. And the guy's literally just going to watch me hit for an hour or something, you know, like, but, or, or it's, but, uh, and I think too about um, the, the martial arts, uh, there are stories of this, at least. I'd love to find the actual, like, this is where this happened. But apparently like to enter some dojos to study under these martial arts masters, you had to do like a, you know, a 10 or 15 or 20 minute horse stance outside the dojo. And then they'd let you in. And I find that funny. It's like, well, how many strength and conditioning facilities would be not underwater if that was the business model is first you have to do this and then you could train here. But it also makes me think a little bit about, um, I was listening to an interview with Adam Archuleta who trained under Jay Schrader. So Jay's like his main protege had the one of the best, if not the best total NFL combine performances of all time uh, across like with considering like the pro agility vertical and all those things. Um, and I guess before... Um, Adam, even, Adam even started with Jay. I think Jay gave him like a basic program to do. Adam did it completely on his own for a few weeks or months or whatever. Got great results. Wanted to train with Jay in person. And I think Jay then like berated him for a few hours to make sure he really wanted it, you know, and then like finally let him in, I think at some point. But it's kind of the opposite where we do live in this place where you, it's like, all right, you know, sign up, get instruction. And it's very like, you know, and, and again, I think there's, good things to guidance but at the same time it's like because that's almost how coaching is now approached it's like well where is the space for the other things and with the levels you're talking about i almost think that's a good way you could almost put it like hey 
we're going through level one. If you showed someone a pyramid, here's level one. Here's what level one's all about. It's about you figure, here's the container where you're going to figure these things out and being able to, um, and, and, and we'll use different constraints. I mean, honestly, it's youth. It's like what Jeremy Frisch does with all the youth athletes. Here's the big container of obstacle courses. And, you know, it's like, it's not like, oh, lift your knee like this to hit this obstacle. It's like, no, just figure out the obstacle. You know, it's how we learn anyways. But to, I think sometimes we just need that like graph to, to also help communicate, hey, this is what you need right now. Yeah, I think I have three comments on that. One would be too, I think people like the level one self-organization, I think people kind of get to a point where they don't think that a guy can get to a high level just by self-organizing. Where I have seen that before, like you don't have to do any coaching. A guy can self-organize and you have a high school or college kid that has none, no coaching ever throw 95 or 100, be a stud pitcher. And so those are the guys that you're like, at that point, they've already surpassed any level that I was going to give you. You're like you've self-organized this far. I don't want to mess you up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with Jay Schrader and the, and kind of like that training style, once you develop the reputation, which I think is the biggest yeah. thing too, it's like early on, if you know, your early stage of coaching career, I think you'd be hard pressed to say like, we're just going to self-organize and see what happens where I've told like other coaches starting out, you might as well just offer something for free. So you have subjects of, you know, 20 to 40 people that are willing to try and do do it your way without paying. And then you have like the proof is in the pudding where you've done it before. And so now you can progress the second and have your athletes where like for me starting out as a coach, you know, as a strength and conditioning coach at Middlebury College or even early on in like pitching, they're just like, I couldn't just say you need to self-organize. And that's like mm-hmm. my coaching philosophy. Whereas when enough people see that it actually does work, then you can say like, this is how we do it. This is why we do it. And here's another couple hundred people that have done it in similar ways. So I think you have to get to a point where you can yeah. say like, this is why we're self-organizing is because if I coach you and I've, I've said this on phone calls, once I got to a certain point uh, in my coaching, it was like the first call was always going to be, I'm not going to say a lot to you. I want you to figure some things out. I'm going to give you some drills to play around with. And then you're going to come back to me and tell me what you think about it and how you feel about it. Then we can work through it together. I think guys were more appreciative of that than the guys that you walk into a gym and you just like give the same five cues to everybody throwing and everyone's doing the same drills. It's just like, no, I want to let you like, I want to figure this out together. It's more like a team teamwork than it is like coach and athlete or coach and player. Yeah. It's like the, the, the X factor or forgotten or not forgotten, but like that, that thing is the, that other skill, that other thing is the adaptive process of the athlete. Like it's like that adaptive process goes hand in hand with, it almost exists outside of um, yeah. the other, all the, you know, here's five cues or whatever. And it's yeah. like, and you can bounce back and forth between the two, you know, like when appropriate, like, I think it's not to say that those, you know, that, that I'm, some athletes need more instruction. Like the guy who's the high jumper with me, uh, he was a great below me at, when I was jumping in college, like he wanted lots of instruction. I barely wanted any, so you know I'm sure he would want you to tell him stuff. Or some people are like, ah, I'll just figure it out, you know. And like, but it's like the best athletes. I find I'd be curious what you think. It does seem like the people who are the best athletes are the ones who are more the figure it outers. Those are the ones who they just can get it, you know. And and you and and the good coach sees that they get it, but then they also know how to work with the people who don't and how to give them the thing they need. Yeah, we have like the athletes, the type of athletes that I've coached in the past have been the more like cerebral um i wouldn't say overthinkers but like to think a lot and need a lot of explanation mm-hmm. whereas some of the better athletes are literally just like <laughs> and i think people have said this about some of the best big leaguers in baseball like they're just 
the dumbest. Like they don't <laughs> think they don't need to think they kind of have figured it out, have had it. And so there's this, the picture, I don't know if you know him, Trevor Bauer was like a balance of both where he basically put himself in a lab and figured out how to throw hard. And then he was analytical enough to be able to like go back and forth. And I've over, I've only ever met like a couple other athletes, like a guy I worked with Tyler Zombro, similar to that, where you can pull into the, I'm going to be super analytical and be super like, where's my body in space. But also when it's competition mode, I can flip that switch and compete, which I think a lot of guys don't have. And so a lot of the athletes that I've coached before have been like the overly analytical, tough to flip mm-hmm. that switch, but in a training setting, they're really good. And so when it comes time for like game time, it's like a lot of my coaching was you need to stop thinking because when it is game time, you can't, this, this, this process that you have right now of, of thinking of where you are in space cannot happen. Like it's more so just go be a dog. Yeah. And then review yeah sorry to interrupt you but I, I i was literally just thinking that as you were talking i was like animals are the best athletes like you want to be that like uh, like i post like a bobcat jumping over leo it was like jumping across a pier like from one to another and just hot like or even a cheetah chasing down prey like or whatever it is or, or the dog jumping and catching a frisbee you know like you want to be that like that whatever that is like that's the state that you want to be when it comes time for it because that's like the most pure, like the most pure, there's the least amount of like excess messing yourself up intellectually. It's just everything is the purest channel to movement there is, which is an animal. It's like, yeah, intellectual resistance gets in the way of like the, what you're trying to do, the movement. So it's just like, don't, don't think. And then the best athletes are the ones that are able to turn it off when they need to, like the think mode and just like go, which is, it's cool to see like when guys flip the switch, like the differences they can make, even in a trading setting where you can see some guys like you literally, it's as if they're pitching in like the ninth inning of a world series where they're not thinking about anything. And if anyone talks to them to like yell at them or like mm-hmm. freak out on them, it's like they, they are able to go there. And it's like, I've only ever seen it with very specific guys that have been in the game for a long time that have pitched at the big league level where they, they can just turn it on and you know, when it's like, they've gone in like dog mode mm-hmm. and then they've like out of it, they're like the nicest human being ever. And then <laughs> yeah. when it's time to throw like, throw a bullpen or they have like an outcome they're trying to get they will flip the switch they'll go into like their dog mode and then once they're done it's like completely normal personing and they go into like a reset which is just i don't know it's a cool like mental side to see yeah i was thinking about that just the other day uh, when i was doing a sprint workout i was thinking about everyone knows feed the cats and with like you watch sprinters like really fast sprinters they almost actually seem to be the ones who walk the slowest like if you watch them just walking around a lot of times it's like super slow like kind of like this interesting actually i i find it interesting to watch how different track athletes just their walking gait and tendencies like a high jumper versus a sprinter but i was thinking to myself it's almost because they're trying to create a polarity too it's almost like because that person who (laughs) like i remember when i was in college there was a guy who walked around campus who had literally the name the speedwalker like he was like would just bear down and like hunch over his backpack and just like truck to classes like da, 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 da. and honestly that guy's i mean who knows how fast of a sprinter he is exactly but if you're always in that mode what polarity are you creating you know like like those the cats are the ultimate with just like the super chill and i was i started actually do that between my sprints i was like yeah, like you're like saving it up. You know, you're kind of withholding a little bit because we live in a society that doesn't do that, that doesn't withhold things. So it's like you're, you watch these people who naturally get it. Like they withhold. So when they go, they're, yeah, like cat or dog mode, like you're saying, like 
either or. My dad's a big soccer guy. And so when I was home for Thanksgiving, he showed me a video where it was uh, Messi's coach talking about how he walks. So like he walks the most of like any soccer player like during the match because he's either like, you know, that polarity he's saving up for when mm-hmm. he needs to like attack. And so it's just like video of him basically throughout a game, just like walking. And then you could see like, it was almost like preparation for like when he needed to turn it on, he knew when to go. And then it was almost like, yeah, the either saving energy or that polarity of just like the, yeah, the dog versus not dog, I guess, but it's just, it's, it's super interesting to see those sides of it. And just like, they can get to such a high level because they also on the other end can stay low when they need to. And I think that just like adds to it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I think there's so much, yeah. With the messy thing too. I, there was an interesting video of how he does more scans too, like then with his eyes than other players. And it's almost, I wonder if part of that's when he's walking so he can slow down and be more aware, you know, and just everything gets taken in, you know? And, so um, that would be a cool podcast. I, I someone on Twitter had posted that. And I was trying to follow up with that. But I, uh, anyways, um, let's a couple more questions here just before we close this out. And one, um, you had actually mentioned with the turn and burn, and I remember the first time I saw that drill was um, uh, at Pro Force. Um, I think Kevin Hollibaugh was talking about it, and I had, I mean, I come from javelin world, so it's like you can't do a turn and burn with the javelin. Like that, or you could, you actually could, but yeah. it would be difficult. And you, I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to kind of have it facing the direction. I don't know. I mean, go try it and get back. I'll try it and get back to you. But I was just thinking about, uh, well, one, actually, it brought me even to the linear, back to the linear and the rotational. Cause I actually see that in, in, um, like dunk takeoffs, like a running two leg jump. You have some people who are just like you said, like they actually linearly will drive straight into that takeoff and have less of a pivoting action at the end. Like, uh, Isaiah Rivera comes to mind. Um, he jumped, uh, I think, like a true 50-inch vertical off two feet, and he's very like straight line in nature versus other guys like Connor Barth, if people know who Connor is, I've posted videos of him a few times, has a much more rotational jump stop type setup. And so I, I was just thinking about that in the sense of like, you know, might you love, I'm sure, and they both were, I'm sure, very self, like no one coaches dunking takeoffs. I mean, a few, it's getting into becoming a thing, but it's really not. Um, but anyways, I was just thinking about, I don't even know why I went there. I just kind of, that's not related to my question. Sorry, here's my question is with the turn and burn, it seems like that, like that would help create separation, right? Like it gets, it would, it gives you some speed, but then it puts the hips, the shoulders behind the hips, right? Like. I'd, I'd be curious for you to expand on that and just uh, in the scope of developing rotational power and similar ways uh, with momentum to help build rotational power for throwing athletes. Yeah. So I think with the turn and burn, and this is like a case study with a coach that was at Treb, um, he had gotten super linear with like shuffle throws, any, ter- any type of linear momentum. It was almost, you could just watch the throw and it all in one plane. And so, uh, the the cue or the drill was just let's do a tournament to get you feeling some sort of rotation mm. and the feedback was like automatically a plus five mm. mile an hour like jump up in velocity and so yeah there is and barry's talking about it all there's like separation linearly so like back to front and there's also separation rotationally and so i think the turn and burn the way that you can coach it is just yeah allowing it and someone had cued too and I, sometimes a big cue guy but it's like that feeling of as you're receiving a ball from the outfield. So again, like the constraint of the game, your kind of lower half unwinds underneath you. And then you're actually creating separation, not only rotationally by like the lower half rotating first, but also 
the lower half is getting out in front of the torso and you're creating again that side bend so it's like that mm. multi-plane separation that creates that velocity and so like again in terms of like the bucketing of the coiler clear you have that if a guy gets super linear add some rotation and that might help that like the sequencing of everything as well yeah yeah that makes sense it what do you think that for something that's like a standing, uh, that starts from a standing position, like a pitch or even like a golf swing, I guess, do you think, do you think that with bringing a little bit of momentum, a few steps into it can facilitate more side bending, like you said, like versus just, hey, you're, you're standing there, you know, just, and, and we'll try to wind up from a stand. Do you think that can facilitate by throwing more momentum in more side bending potential? Yeah, I was golfing with a buddy on Arizona and her. Our one cue is just side bend as much as possible <laughs> for it. But yeah, I think if you watch like, and that's another like golf that I've been interested in, the the long drivers, um, the guys that do long driving, you can see sometimes when the pelvis does shift laterally, it creates that side bend for you. So it's almost like that movement of the pelvis kind of shifting to the left allows you to side bend and then unload everything. So it, that's kind of how... With the constraint of baseball on a mound, you're not getting a full run up. You have you have the slope. It's then about how can we use the slope to create that momentum into the throw rather than, you know, if we have a full run up yeah. and I got a jab in the hand. Yeah, that's gotta change things a lot. When it'd be hard to, with the mound, sometimes I forget that pitching it's with the mound and the slope and gravity. Yeah. It's not um like cricket or javelin, like you yeah. you have those and pieces too. Yeah, the, I think Adarian talked about it on your podcast. So just like everybody's got 9.8, just like yeah. everyone's got gravity. And so like the slope of the mound, if you use it well, use gravity well, it's almost free energy, I guess. You don't have to like, you know, do anything. It's no, not like purely muscular driven. It's just using the slope of the mound to give you, you know. Yeah. Um, one last uh, just general training question uh, as it relates to pitching is you mentioned like that guy who did javelin throw for six months and came back and, and some bench press and things like that. What do you feel like if there's like, like kind of top general activities for people who want to throw harder, pitch harder, like, you know, sprinting, various sport play, you know, like throwing shot put, I mean, that's not quite the, you know, in the realm, but like, is there any things that you've become like really aligned towards you think are really beneficial for people who want to throw that isn't necessarily outright throwing? Yeah, I think, of course, it's the general, like, if you're super weak, probably lifting is going to help mm. you throw harder. If you're super stiff, probably the relaxation techniques. I know we talked about, like, the oh, yeah. shaking, the relaxing, like, techniques will help you just, like, opposite ends of the spectrum or other sides of the spectrum. I, I think any type of, like, general lifting, once you get to a certain point, you don't have to continue lifting like crazy. I think the coordination is huge. You know, Austin Yoakum's got the like a lot of his warm-ups and activities that he does. Um, and then it becomes like you're training the athlete, and then you get that specific skill of like throwing, where it becomes those like the different plyo drills, the different exercises you can do actually throwing. But I think most of the time it's just general athletic qualities um and kind of like getting yourself out of what you're stuck in. So for me, it, the relaxation techniques have been huge of just like shaking, yeah. shaking myself out before training. Um and throwing the overload implements have been huge of just like relaxing with it has allowed me to just figure out how to throw, which is, you know, in general. Interesting. So a combination of um, like throwing an overweight ball with the relaxate, like the shaking technique methods. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that's something too, that it was implemented with uh, baseball is just overload and overload implements of kind of like 
first it was plyo balls, which was uh, driveline created these squishy balls. Just get your mindset out of throwing a baseball. And so it was like you have a wall and you can throw a plyo into and you're just focusing on the specific movements of the throw and not necessarily the throwing a strike to a catcher. And so it's like that can get you in the mindset of, you know, either relax, relaxing with the technique, some guys who are on that loose end and are really good at relaxing, like finding the right times to be stiff or like create that stiff movements. Um, but yeah, just getting, getting away from, I think a lot of guys do the, like the five ounce baseball off the mound and kind of forget that, like, if you just do that your whole life, there's no, your body only has that type of feedback. And so you kind of have to get away from that to figure out how to actually throw and complete the task sometimes. And then you go back to it. Nice. Yeah, I was going to, that was actually something that was on my question list to ask you. I, I well, we, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, but yeah, those shaking movements, because um, yeah, I've talked about those a little bit on the podcast uh, with Aaron Cantor, talked about them. Uh, I was on uh, Austin Yoakum's podcast talking about them. And you were the first coach I actually had seen that you're like, yes, I use these with my athletes. So that was uh, Marcelo Pelozo had a video. Uh, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. But tell me a little bit about some of the favorite movements, what they do, um, and how it really contrasts with what, how we typically, we're usually like activate this muscle. So yeah, tell me a little bit about your process and journey with that, um, those shaking and, and releasing motions. So Ben Bruce, the guy at Tread, um, used to just like, and Kevin Foster did too, like the dead arm swings where they would have like either plyo balls, you kind of focus on being relaxed. And so kind of like took that implement of like a couple shakes, you know, at the bottom to like allow yourself feel the throw for guys and basically just as relaxed as possible just like let the arm be a whip because i think a lot of guys again with the five ounce you add that like muscular tension and kind of just like try to compensate around things mm. where it's like a lot of times it's just be super whippy super relaxed and just like allow the throw to happen and i think there is an element that you need to get like the throw to be electric that adds that like tension piece of it but i think a lot of guys are already there mm. too far too much they already like have created those compensatory patterns and they just need to relax. And so those dead arm for me, a lot of times it does like that dead arm kind of shimmies shakes and just a couple of those into like a throw to feel like the arm is actually a whip and you can crack the crack the whip. Um, and sometimes I call it like wham throws or some guys just like wham. I'm a big sound effect guy too. So it's like yeah. wham throws are just like relax, like the wham of the ball hitting the wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the, you got the fire and ice emoji or, you know, the sound effect. I think those are, those say a lot of words. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I, uh, yeah, that's, that's so cool because it does, uh, with the heavy ball, in some ways, my brain would say, well, if you want to be totally relaxed, shouldn't you throw something lighter? But like you said, like, well, you might compensate by actually more tension. And it's almost like a polarity, like the heavier ball makes you, forces you to meet it with more relaxation or something like that. It's almost like a, deeper attractor well or i don't know it makes sense to me at least what you're what you're saying about that yeah i think with the heavy ball too um there's more like proprioceptive feedback i guess awareness mm, of where yeah. your body is so it's not like that like if you have a three ounce ball and you're trying to be a whip you might as well like use your hand i guess and just, uh, yeah, like, yeah. just like, like that but i guess with the ball and you're actually throwing something you have some awareness of where your arm is in space because of the one pound object that is at the end of like the lever. And so you can kind of like feel where it is and then just like throw it. Oh yeah. That makes perfect sense. And and I know, yeah, like if I was to go out and throw a golf ball right now, like there'd be no ref <laughs> yeah. the reference would be not existent, but I know all these shaking things with a javelin that weighs a pound is it's like easy. Cause you have that reference point. And yeah, I think what's similar is as I've 
grown into and and Aaron Cantor really got me going on the different like the different shaking mo- uh, movements and that was honestly just back in August and but everyone I know who has taken those on uh, be it coaches I know my own clients uh, has have absolutely loved it and gotten really good results from it and um, one of the things that I think would be interesting that I have not tried yet that I think would be really fascinating would be doing like controlled overspeed sprinting for people since sprinting is such a common like everyone knows sprinting like do the uh, get towed at maybe not faster than your max velocity but at about it and then do all those shaking movements before you go get towed at max velocity and see and use that as an extra method to see how easy can you make max velocity feel you know you want to disinhibit that stuff so see how you can do it and yeah for me even too like some of my jump stuff i'll do uh, like if I'm dropping down off a box, I'll do shakes before I drop off. You know, it's almost yeah. my, my, and that way I go with gravity. And the the goal is not just to land smoothly, which that's always is the goal, but to use the shaking to help that landing process feel even better. How good can I make this feel in addition yeah. to just getting the reps in? That's been a big one as well. Yeah. You're like manipulating. Yeah. At that point, you're like manipulating the brain's feedback of, yeah, relaxation and do like a, I can actually move this fast and be relaxed. Yeah. And like, Again, it's like a, sometimes I call it like a safety thing for the brain where it's like, okay, if I move this fast and I'm relaxed, then I can definitely move faster and maybe still be relaxed, but I won't get hurt from it. So I think it's yeah. almost like tricking your brain into, I can be relaxed and also have this super high output. And sometimes with like, with pitchers too, you have like the radar gun of just, you know, you, they throw 90 really easy and they're almost like, wow, I can throw way harder than that. And you kind of like build that up slowly. We had like a thing called one mile an hour bullpens with a guy where it'd be a sub max, like 90 miles an hour and then sub max 91, 92. And they'd often mm-hmm. surpass like their max velo because the relaxation was the primary focus. And then you kind of just like build intent off this re- like relaxed state that you started out in. Yeah. It's like a speed gate golf and just seeing where it's just like, Hey, just run through these gates at 10 meters at go 2.2 seconds instead of like one, seven, five and see try to get as close as you can to two, two. And then people, how that sets the stage to just blow away PRs. And I think it kind of puts you in a more like that animal state too, where you're not thinking about how to do this thing, you know, and you can hone into the relaxed state of being, and it's just more task oriented. Yeah. Less, yeah. Less thinking, less uh, interference, just, yeah. Focus on the task. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, last, last question for you. Uh, in your official opinion, do you think having a mullet helps you to throw faster i mean there's some mind body stuff i'm sure but uh any any thoughts on that one in my professional opinion uh mullets and mustaches equal plus one and a half to two miles an hour velocity so if you're willing to put in the time to grow both of those things you will throw harder yes do you think that's specific to baseball would that work for golf i don't see a lot of that in golf (laughs) what about long do you think it worked for long drive or you think that's really specific to baseball for whatever reason now we're gonna have to have someone try. I'm pretty sure I was looking for long drivers the other day. I think there's one German guy that has a huge mustache. So mustaches <laughs> and mullets equal velo and hitting the ball yeah. farther. Yeah, awesome. I love it. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good um, you know substantial point to conclude on. <laughs> but the was, one thing I can say was certainty. Yes. Oh, I love it. Well, sounds good. Well, hey, Devin, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. And I'm excited to do my next javelin throwing session as well. You gave me a ton of great ideas. All right. Thanks, Joel
Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next week.